welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 15. Developing a False Self. Emotional Control. Basically, the message there is that um, even if uh, things are bodily underpinned, how you satisfy those things that are bodily underpinned is totally culturally dependent. And you'll find time and again people will say, oh, I don't like Freud because he treats us as if we're just animals. But, well, he does say that we are animals, but we're animals that can learn. And the, and the things about us that learn are our drives and our affects, as well as our cognitions. Okay, so... So in other words, um, obviously what you eat depends on your culture and what you find desirable and erotic is inextricably cultural as well. Okay, now I just want to sort of bore you for a minute with Tomkins' definition of affects because often people say affects are not defined. And what you'll notice in the psychological literature is that a lot of writers will, will treat the terms affects, emotions and feelings as though they're totally interchangeable, which I don't think is a really good idea because I think they're quite different. So affects are basically hardwired affect programs that you're born with. Um, and they're sort of like uh, a set of muscles or glandular responses. He, he really privileges the face. He says located in the face, but also widely distributed throughout the body. And he says that gives you feedback. There's all the facial feedback hypotheses from the 1970s. You get feedback from your face, which tells you whether or not something is acceptable broadly or unacceptable. And that th these responses are triggered at, at subcortical centers, like you know the hypothalamus, the insula, the amygdala, etc. And that there are specific programs for each distinct affect. Now, don't think he's going all localizationist and thinking fear is stored in your amygdala. Not so. But the amygdala is part of a circuit, brain circuitry that is implicated in fear. And what you're afraid of is an environmental concern, an object in the environment. In other words, you're certainly assumed to be born with these programs. They're innately endowed, they're genetically inherited. And when they're activated, they capture a whole lot of bits of your body. They just capture your body and get it into that state, basically. And you don't have to do anything. You're suddenly running away from the bear or the snake. So the sorts of people that agree with this, Sylvan Tompkins, who was the PhD supervisor of Carol Izzard, Paul Ekman, he wasn't the PhD supervisor of Yark Panksepp, who's one of the predominant researchers in this area now, and you've got Damasio and heaps of other people, Ledoux, heaps of people in this kind of area. So basically, you've got different bodily patterns, you're primed for action, and so your breath gets going in all sorts of ways. They've also got very characteristic facial expressions that are just there on your face without you knowing it, and we don't have to learn them. And those are sorts of like the basic emotions, a la Ekman, using um, Sylvan Tompkins's pictures, which are posed actor pictures. But if you want really good pictures of basic affects, watch Cricket. Like, watch what happens when they get out, LBW. You'll see it. You'll see it all. It's fantastic. And now with the sort of those cameras, they can slow it right down. Fabulous. Fabulous for research. Okay, so from a personality point of view, you've got these kind of punishing or rewarding effects, and you've also got what Tompkins calls the resetting effect of surprise. Like, ooh, I expected that to be terrible, and it's great. I expected that to be great, and it's terrible. Um, but... 
Tompkins is a bit of a rad. He thinks that it's forget sex, Freud, and drives. It's the affects that are primary, he says. And Freud says, no, 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 it's the drives, my good man. Okay. And so even with these basic affects, however, um, you've got to be quite clear that they're not immodifiable. They can be changed in their manner of expression. They can't be changed in the way they hit, but what you do about them once they hit can be changed. So if you've got the affect of surprise or curiosity or fear, that's modifiable by the way that you attend to it, label it, describe it, avow it to others, etc. You can also appraise it differently. And if you have all sorts of associated cognitions, that can shape your emotional experience. Like if you think, I have to cut through this person's flesh if I'm going to save their life, right? You can contextualize an action in a particular way. We can modify our affective displays, however, and the way that we do that is depending on what the context requires of us, the sorts of feeling rules that we've picked up from our culture. We can reappraise incoming stimuli, like that blood isn't really realistic, I'm not going to feel quite so terrified at this horror film. Um, you can reappraise the bodily cloud of emotion. Gee, I'm nervous before my lecture, that means I respect my audience. Once I start speaking, it will be excitement and energy, all right? And that often is what happens if you're well enough prepared. If you're not well enough prepared, it stays as terror and anxiety. Okay. Um, but the learned avoidance of the bodily cloud of emotion, where emotions are not chunked or they're not accessible to words or labels, that's not so great. That's when you can actually come to just experience undifferentiated anxiety. I feel bad and I don't know why. Okay. And that's what alexithymia is, where you don't have the words for emotions or feelings and you can't chunk them in socially normative ways so they can share them with others and talk about them to others. So what I've suggested today is that what Facebook does is that it takes apart the grouped processes, the grouped affective processes. And Facebook itself has to come to be almost as automatic as what the drives or affects did to your body in the first place. They grabbed everything about you, you know, how you act, what your face is doing, what you're paying attention to, what you say next, okay? You have to get that skilled in being able to observe yourself so that you don't give it all away if the situation requires you to know but not show what you're feeling. And you have to be able to do that in a pretty automatic sort of way. Or the, or the client is going to pick up that you're judging or that you're appalled or that you're horrified. But you have to be contextually sensitive. It's like, you know, if you're working with a really traumatized person, to get that really blank neutrality is going to traumatize them again. So you have to find a way of staying present for some clients in a way that you may not have to stay present for other clients. And if you're a psychoanalyst and you've been doing that for nine hours a day and then you go out for your three-year-old's daughter's birthday party, you don't want to be, you know, unable spontaneously to get excited and express joy. So it has to be changed. You have to go turn it off when it's no longer needed. And that's not always an easy thing to do. For face work to occur, you've got to be able to have taken apart your expressive displays, explored them, really got to know yourself, and then, like a good actor, put them back together again, re-automated them as chunks, so that those chunks can get triggered to fit changing situations. 
And you also have to be able to go, okay, this is really not working. This expressive display is just harming this poor person. It's not working. I'm going to have to find another way of being able to signal how present I am for the person. And the client will let you know. They'll say something like, could you give me something to hang on to here, please? You thought you were right there, but you were being too controlled, too contained. They can't feel you in the room, and they need to be able to if they're feeling agonized or vulnerable. You know, if you've ever really told something that makes you feel ashamed to your friend, and they just go, oh, oh, I've got to go now. You're left going, oh, oh dear. You know, are they ever going to speak to me again? That kind of thing. Okay, okay one of my favorite pieces of research, because it's longitudinal. How often do people write at the end of articles? Well, of course, this is only cross-sectional research. Somebody, not me, is going to have to do longitudinal research because it's so hard to do. And here is um, Negrayo and Bonanno, George Bonanno, um, doing longitudinal research. Now, I think I've told you about this group before. This is a group of young women who are verified as having experienced childhood sexual abuse. Okay. And those women are tracked through their life course and they come into the laboratory for various forms of research and they often don't know why it is they who are being brought into the laboratory. The researchers do, but the, the clients don't know. Now what they found was that when they had these young women being interviewed about what was the worst thing you've ever experienced in your life, and they had the close-up, slow-mo, micro-momentary expression camera on their faces, some of the women said, well, nothing is worse than childhood sexual abuse. And other women didn't disclose that history. And they said something like, oh, you know, I, I failed my chemistry exam and my father had his heart set on me, you know, being a chemist. In other words, they chose not to disclose. Now, what they found was that in those women who kept their own privacy, which they are fully entitled to do, and did not avow their experience to the person that they're speaking to, they had more non-Duchenne smiles. They had the smiles where the eyes didn't get in on the action. It's just those sorts of appeasing displays. I'm sorry I'm not telling you the full story, but I'm not going to go into it today kind of thing. That's what they're kind of saying at a facial level. So in other words, what's interesting is that having gone through something traumatic, can result in dissociation. In other words, having experienced trauma might mean that you take apart your emotional experience. And that's called dissociation or disaggregation, using Janet's term from sort of historical times. Now, what Negrayo et al.'s research shows is that sometimes emotional experience comes apart to protect you because you don't want everyone to know what you've gone through. So you smile, and you don't tell, and you don't reveal, except to those who've got the trained eyes to see what a non-Duchenne smile is. And that gives you a window in to the subtle inner experiences of another. And so what I'm trying to suggest here is that dissociation can be adaptive for certain people who've experienced trauma, and certain kinds of conscious dissociation, which I call partitioning, is required if you want to be a certain kind of professional. You have to be able to take apart these multi-layered assemblages of all these component processes that can come apart. They're dissociable. Yes, nature wanted them all to go together, and we were hardwired with them all going together, 
but we can learn and we can take things apart and many people do. So for instance, and I've got a really fantastic uh, article from a British newspaper in 99, I think it was, um, where they were actually talking about what I call Facebook in regards to hostage negotiation. And unfortunately, one of the things that the article said is that hostage negotiators tend to die very young. And they tend to die of things like heart attacks, which makes me think, and I don't know if there's evidence for this yet, that there's a kind of psychosomatic toll sometimes of knowing but not showing. It costs you at a bodily level because you're still experiencing the clout of it, but it's got nowhere to go. Um, so that was just something that they noted, that hostage negotiators tend to, to die prematurely and of quite a narrow range of difficulties. And it could be that they cope in various ways. They might drink more than other people. Do you know what I mean? You don't know what else goes with being a hostage negotiator. But psychoanalysis, I think, also requires the use of face work. Being able to sense another person's feelings, sense your own feelings, and yet keep control of reactions which could harm the process if you reveal your reactions to the other person too soon. So, you know, what if, is there a place to signal to the other person that what they're doing is morally a bit suspect? And I said, not usually, there's not much place for that. You know, it's really something you never really get to do. Give the example of, say, child molesters. Often a child molester will acknowledge one victim. You can be sure there isn't just one victim. You can be almost sure there are many, many more. You show moral that that's morally reprehensible when they tell you the one, you'll never find out about the others. You'll never know. So in a sense, you have to really know how to hold back, which is quite a difficult thing called emotional labor. Um, and Facebook is an art, in a sense. It's top-down control of your bodily economy. Instead of the bodily clout being the first bit that sets everything else in motion, you've got to get certain theoretical beliefs, certain bits of knowledge to control your body, which is tough stuff. In other words, you've got to produce on your own surface, your face, your habits, your sitting posture, what you say next, something that your workplace requires. You've either got to transform bits of emotion, as I do, like if I'm slightly anxious, it turns into excitement fairly quickly, thank goodness, yeah? Or you've got to omit parts of emotion. You can't transform horror, so you just don't show horror with any luck. But it's hard work, because, because the affective clout, the bodily clout, is so powerful. And so I just want to remind you of those terms. In terms of affect, you've got nine, according to Tompkins, that are highly specific and they're, they're present from birth. So nine affects present from birth, and that's the kind of biology. But then you've got emotions. And there's not just nine of those, there's squillions of those. And that's a kind of combination of whatever affect has just been triggered. But as you know, affects can, you can mix a cocktail. You know, I'll have this kind of appraisal, these sets of beliefs. I know from experience that this is how it goes, you know. And that's what gives you your unique emotional life, which is pretty unique. Yeah, culture's got a big input, but your emotional life by and large is expressive of you. And then you've got feeling, which means I'm aware that an affect or emotion has just been 
you know, activated or primed. In other words, I'm conscious, it's mental, it's not just bodily clout. And so there are different ways that they can capture your body. There are unconscious things that go with being in an affective state, and that's what you've got to learn to attend to in the client, because that's signaling to others what inner state they've got, so that you can soothe or repair or help. But also, if you're in a punchy kind of affective state, other people can avoid you because you're a bit dangerous. So affect is a, is a communicative process. It signals things to others, but most importantly to me, it signals to you what state you're in, and it signals to you what matters to you about what's going on. So when people sort of say you're overreacting, I think there's no such thing. There's no such thing as an overreaction. You're reacting to what it means for you. The fact that they don't see it that way, yeah, you know, it's your emotion, it's your heart, it's your experience. But the face is quite a privileged sight. It's not just the sight of the expression of the affect, according to Tompkins, it's actually part of the formation of the affect. So he thought if you didn't express the emotion facially, it wouldn't fully form. And so one way that they tried to get people to control their emotions was through controlling their facial expressions. And that led to a whole raft of research in the 1970s, which I just realized last year when I had to present at a conference, has been picked up again. It's kind of flavor of the month again. I think my friends were giving a paper on whether or not Botox actually changes your experience of your emotions. Okay, now I just need to segue into the notion of work, and I hope this is not too dull for you, but I, I find this quite powerful. Okay, so this is the kind of object notion of work that you produce things, and this is the emotional labor notion of work that you produce not such amazingly genuine smiles. Now, there's a, there's a strange but wonderful uh, brand of psychoanalysis that's in France right now, Christophe Dujour, he's a professor, and um, he gets all sorts of astonishing consultancies, getting taken out to various big firms within France to psychoanalyze the company, which is quite, quite wonderful work. And he says that you can't just look at the products of work, you have to look at the process of work. And this is something that's been in the mix since 1983 that I've known about, which is um, that managing your emotions is hard work. When you regulate or manage your emotions in exchange for money, you are undertaking emotional labor. And if you've ever waitressed, you've undertaken emotional labor. But emotional labor can stay invisible if you only judge work by its outcomes alone, if you don't look at the process. And in uh, the book, The Managed Heart, Early Hochschild suggested back in the 80s, that the way of the future seems to be placing an increasing demand on emotional labor. And that's where you've got to take apart your emotion. You've got to um, induce a feeling that you're not having, feeling nice towards someone who's just called you a bitch or something like that on a plane, or someone that's just thrown hot coffee at you, would you believe? And you still have to be smiling and polite to them. I don't think I'd be real good at that. <laughs> okay, and uh, But you've got to produce the outward countenance that produces the proper states of minds in other people. So if you're a waitress and you're having a bad day, 
You can't show that. You've got to have the smile that makes other people enjoy their evening. So you've got to become expert in managing feelings, in creating observable facial and bodily displays that fit with an emotion that you're not currently really spontaneously having. So it's not just your beliefs that are intruding into your emotional economy. It's your boss's beliefs. You're becoming part of a system that's requiring you to, to learn different things about your emotion. And one of the scary things is, are there inflexible things that happen that you can't undo once you've done that? You know, are there costs or consequences that aren't so reversible about emotional labor? That's my major concern. Does your body pay? Do you die young? Do you drink more than you should because of the emotional labor that's required of you? Now, Hochschild suggests that it affects more women than men in the United States, but I actually think that's changing as well. Um, and Tomkins says, you know, I don't know if you ever remember someone saying this. They used to say it to me as a waitress. Oh, you know, you're smiling. You must be really happy. And I was thinking, uh, no, <laughs> I'm not. But I'm hoping you guys are having a great time. I wish I was sitting where you were. Do you know that feeling? So I wanted them to have a great night. You know, I wanted them to feel smiled upon. But it wasn't just a simple expression of my inner state. It was an expression of the context, my training, my boss's requirements of me, not just, oh yes, I'm, I'm a happy personality. So the way to smile, emotions mean different things in this context. It's not just about inner state, but it's about beliefs about what would make you have a good night and the fact that he wishes you to have a good night. So that's a, it's positive, it's lovely, but it's not just happiness. So once you start to think about emotional labor in this way, you realize it's hard work. Now, normally within psychoanalysis, the word work is used for the process of making the unconscious conscious. That's what's called work in psychoanalysis, because it's painful and hard. And that's, that's tough in itself. But in this case, it means something a little bit different. It means producing on your surface something that only approximates what's actually going on for you at the level of your own body and at your own depth of economy. And that's what that diagram tried to show you, the depth of your emotional experience. You've got the bodily clout, manner of attending, appraisal, finding words, chunking it, avowing it, expressing it to others, yeah? So that's the depth of your own economy. And face work is interfering with that system. It's taking those things apart and putting them together in different ways. It's kind of consciously faking emotions. And you can either do that via shifting your appraisal of the situation so that your experiences actually are in accord with expectations that weren't originally your own. Okay, So you could sort of say, this person's behaving like a jerk, or you could say, this is a high-paying customer, <laughs> Okay, and you have to appraise it in a different way. Sometimes your motivation actually has to change, and that's where it starts to get a bit scary for me. It, because can you align yourself with values that actively conflict with your own moral values? It's all, it's all very well for Jill, say, to be working with a freedom fighter because she believes in that process. But would you be okay working for the Nazis? Do you know what I mean? Like, what, what are the consequences of behaving in ways that are out of accord with your own inner value system? What are you selling at that moment? It's quite costly. So portraying things that you don't feel is actually quite dangerous. 
because of course it is what hypocrisy is, being two-faced, acting in ways that go against one's values. And, and there's been, and I really love this piece of research, I know it's an oldie, but I just find it quite fascinating that if you don't like arbitrary authority, and the reason I'm obviously fascinated by this article is because I really hate arbitrary authority, it's one of my pet hates, you know, the person that gives you the, the parking ticket when you were just there, you know, 30 seconds after the, the time had expired, technically you deserve the ticket, but really do you kind of thing. If you cope with that kind of authority resentfully, it unfortunately has consequences for your blood pressure. So, in other words, I'm trying to suggest that the attitudes that you have to changing your bodily economy to fit in with the values of other people, the attitudes you have to that process can make things quite costly for you. If you really resent having to smile, it's going to have, produce more wear and tear on your body than if you can find a way genuinely to smile in a situation. So the cost for the worker is, you know how I was saying emotions are a signal to other people about what state you're in, but they're also a signal to ourselves about what state we're in. Well, if I've taken my emotions apart and reassembled them so many times, I might not be able to hear that signal, that bodily cloud signal anymore of what state I'm in and what really matters to me. I might not know where I stand in a complex situation. Because in a sense, I've framed it as dissociation, just taking things apart in the face of overwhelming stimuli from the outside. But if I'm actively having to do that for values that I don't agree with, it's a form of repression in a sense, because I'm having bodily motivations and values clashing in some ways. And I'm selling my bodily responses, which could be seen as a form of prostitution. So hypocrisy is, in a sense, a partitioning of the subject, a conscious partitioning of the subject, just as I've said, being a therapist requires conscious partitioning of your subject. So what's the difference? You know, it's a, it's a serious concern. Also, think about the recipient. Like, Ehrlich Hochschild talks about uh, Delta Airline hostesses. In those days, they were predominantly women. And they had to learn to smile when passengers would do things like grope them or throw hot coffee at them. What's the consequences for the passenger of being able to get away with behaviours like that? It's not really good for people to think they, that money can buy anything. They have to recognise that there are limits, that, you know, that there are limits to what money can buy and there are limits to a person's grandiosity no matter who they are or what they've paid. Because what you're actually doing is you are accidentally putting the other in a narcissistic position. You're saying, you don't have to treat me like a whole other who's got right to the bodily integrity and not to be groped and, you know, aggressed against. No, if you pay the right amount, you can do that. Okay, so it's, an, it's, it's see what I'm raising here. It's an interesting question. You sort of got monsters in the making, in a sense, there. And this is something that does happen culturally. If you've got a boss that's so powerful that if you were to say to them, him or her, you know, I'm not prepared to do what you require of me, and all that's going to happen is that you get fired, they're never really going to take on board feedback from anyone because everyone is subordinate to them, in a sense. Okay, so you can have monsters in the making in this instance. And when I had a, a workshop 
earlier in May, my friend Jill was presenting a really beautiful paper about apartheid. And she was saying that this is a really unusual situation that accidentally replicated itself in the South African home. You think about it. If you're a white South African child and the person who's looking after you is a black nanny and you love that nanny, part of you absolutely loves that nanny, but another part of you has been split off and socialized into devaluing that person as not quite a full person. What power does that nanny have over you to say, don't throw your toys, don't smash things, don't hit me in the face? You know, because they don't have the power. They're not sort of equal to you. A, a black nanny wasn't even equal to a white child under that horrific regime. Okay, so in other words, you've got a kind of narcissism that would arise, a sense of entitlement, of being very, very special in a way that's not good for anyone to feel special. In other words, the political was enacted right in the intimacy of the relationship to the caregiver in that situation. Okay, now there's different ways that face work is achieved and my actor friends tell me that this is just common knowledge to them and that there's different ways of learning to be an actor. Surface acting is where you're kind of like the Duchenne. You, you, know, you learn, if I lean forward and look powerful and grimace like this, I'll you know, look as if I'm a fearful kind of character. That's surface acting. And apparently you feel emotionally drained or a bit numb if you go in that way. But another way of acting is actually to, to get yourself into that emotional state. And then all of the sort of component pieces of affect are on your side and you look like a really fearful person on stage. That's deep acting. So from a work point of view, deep acting occurs when you're able truly to take the perspective of the customer or refocus towards more positive emotions in a situation so that it's not so costly for you. But all of the examples that were given of that in the Hochschild book arose from nice exchanges with customers. So it's very, very difficult if someone's just being a creep to, to achieve this kind of reframing or reappraisal. But what's crucial here, and I really think this matters, because I don't think we're paid enough for the kind of work that we do sometimes, um, craft definitions of work that just look at beautiful pots, miss entirely the, the service as product, the fact that the process of emotional control is one of the products of labor. And Christophe Dujour says, affectivity is not quantifiable, but my fear is that the costs of it may be quantifiable. The costs of it may be quantifiable. If one measures work by outcomes, you don't count the affect of work, that's true. What's evaluated can only correspond to what's visible, the materialized part of the production. And he says it has no proportional relationship to real working. And he's got this really cool definition of work. He says, um, and you probably know this if you've ever gone into a new workplace. You go, so what are we supposed to do here? And you'll find that often people don't really know. The actual task is slightly unspecified. At what point do you make the, the, the fairy bread? You know, when do you decant the soup? Oh, I don't know. It's, a lot of it's inventing the procedures. In service activities, Dijon suggests it's the biggest bit of work that you don't see, and it needs to be recognized, he says. And he suggests that work occurs at the level of the skin, at the face. And there's a beautiful book by Ozier called The Skin Ego. It's, I don't think it's translated, unfortunately, into English. 
Um, so what Facebook requires simply is the attenuation, that's where you diminish or intensify, but you usually diminish. Sometimes it means you suppress, so you don't have those feelings at all. And sometimes you have to displace the feelings onto something else. So you can see a lot of the old psychoanalytic defense mechanisms are in here as part of your job. It's quite amazing. So at its extreme, I've suggested, Facebook requires dissociation, a partitioning of what is felt. And what I'm suggesting is that you have to be able to reflectively bracket and contain something if it's not in the firm's interests. So workers have to produce the face that's required of them, that they're paid to do. And what happens is that you often have this false self, of which more later, we'll come back to more about false selves, that false self that's got to masquerade as the most alive and aligned of human beings. There's nothing I'd rather do than serve you coffee at 12.30 at night. Okay, that's the, that's the kind of masquerade. And so it, there's got to be acting perhaps at either a deep or a surface level unless you're lucky enough to work for something that you truly believe in. One of my former PhD students works for um, a firm that's trying to promote cycling in Sydney. You've never seen anybody who believed more in cycling in your whole life. And he hardly needs to get paid, is my sense of things, because he just absolutely loves his job. And I think that's something truly to aspire to. So in a sense, Facebook is like developing a false self. A highly automated one that you can put on, a mask, like high self-monitors. They may be aware of the false mask at the start, but if you just put a mask on and you're so consciously aware that you're doing that, it's unlikely to be really convincing to other people. Do you know? You're much more convincing if you truly believe what you're doing. And that's one of the scary things that psychology has to teach us, that if I do something often, I'll come to believe it. That's what cognitive dissonance, my values come into line with my actions even more powerfully than my actions coming into line with my values. Now I'm just going to finish up very, very quickly. I'm going to let you go early today. Um, I love Batson's work on hypocrisy. I can't tell you enough. This is a fantastic paradigm for honours projects. There's all sorts of things that you can explore using this paradigm and it's incredibly simple and elegant. Okay, so here's what they do. They want to get you into a situation where the very thing that you said is your true moral belief is precisely what they make you act against. Okay, in other words, they want you to do something that's exactly what you said you would never do. So they want you to be hypocritical. And they define it as hypocrisy as a motive to appear moral in one's own eyes and in the eyes of others, while, if possible, avoiding the cost of actually being moral. So what they do is they get you to randomly allocate yourself either to a boring lecture or going in a, a raffle for a prize that you really, really want, like you know, unlimited access to the Sydney Film Festival, for instance. When they look at the results, and you're the one doing the allocating, 70 to 80% of you will assign yourselves to the raffle ticket, and the other participant can go to the boring lecture. But if, if the people were asked, was what you did moral, only 10% of them will go, yes, that was moral. Everyone else like, no. 
no, that was bad. I, that was a terrible thing to do. So they're not actually hypocritical because they know that their behaviour is discrepant from their moral standards. So they up the ante. Oh, sorry. I have to just give you Nazo's definition because it's very cool in relation to psychoanalysis because this is mainstream research and he's really zeroing in on the superego aspect. He said, they're not really hypocritical because they recognized and acknowledged the discrepancy between their actions and their moral standards. By capitulating to impulses serving their self-interests, putting themselves in the raffle condition, they evidenced superego weakness but not hypocrisy. So the id won out, but they're not hypocrites. However, Batson and his friends, colleagues, raised the stakes. They said, okay, we want you to be really, really fair or really, really scientific, randomly allocate people to conditions. And what they found was that people became even more hypocritical because they were even more likely to elect to use the coin flip to make the decision and still assign themselves to the reward condition. So they go through all the motions of looking as if they're terribly scientific and fair and still put themselves in the good condition. Okay, thank you so much for your attention and I'll see you next week. That was Lecture 15 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie peterson The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon.